I'd like to ask you to take your Bible this morning, please, to the book of Romans. And we're going to be looking predominantly at two texts this morning, one in Romans chapter 5, which is where I want to ask you to turn first. And then we're going to spend a little bit of time together in Romans chapter 12 as we continue our series on worship. And uh, I'm so thankful for what the Lord is doing in my own life as I think through and engage with what God has to say about this incredible and important opportunity that we have to come together in gathered worship. We began last week talking about the dynamic of worship, the potential of worship to change us as people, and the hunger we should have for worship when we come together. And I noted that predominantly throughout our series, we're going to be looking at what the Bible has to say about gathered worship, when God's people come together in corporate worship. There is certainly the responsibility that you and I have, and really the desire that we have, or should have, to worship God in our own personal life on a daily basis. Life is worship, or should be for a believer. And there are many things the Scripture has to say about that, and we are going to look at some of those as we make our journey through the Scripture related to worship, or Scriptures that speak about worship. But in our series, we want to focus our attention on the gathered worship of God's people. And there is a text that describes something that uh, is stunning about that worship, and I want us to focus our attention on that moment and that idea that comes to us in Romans chapter 5. And so I want to begin reading with you in verse 1, and we're not going to read very much. We're going to read two verses together, and I want you to see something in this text that ought to frame up how we worship. Paul said this to the Roman Christians, therefore, in other words, there's something that he's been talking about for five chapters, and whatever it is he's been talking about now becomes the basis, the foundation, the fuel for something. Therefore, and here's what he's been talking about. He's been talking about how God justifies, how God makes unrighteous people righteous. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And we have this peace through something that Jesus Christ did. Our association with Christ, our embracing of Christ, the work that Christ did is what has resulted in this incredible shalom, this peace that we now have with God. Verse 2, through Him, we also have obtained access by faith, same way that we got justification is how we get access. We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And then here's the phrase I want you to see. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. If I uh, could give you a title this morning, I'm going to. I've called our second message in worship, Exulting in the Hope of Worship. <clears throat> there is a hope that Paul talks about here that I want us to think about. And I want you to look and I want you to think about the word exult. As, as I tried to think about how to present this term that Paul uses at the end of verse 2, rejoice. Um, the term Paul uses there is, is much 
deeper, it's much fuller, it's, it's much stronger than our English word rejoice. You know, we, we have words like rejoice, celebrate, <clears throat> delight. But when Paul uses this word rejoice, there is an, an essence of triumphant jubilation. There's something that has happened, and when you experience what has happened, and when you understand what has happened, there isn't just happiness. There isn't just, oh, that's wonderful. There isn't just sort of this, well, let's celebrate that together in our gathered assembly or when we come together. There is this triumphant exultation. There is this jubilation, this unfettered jubilation over something that has happened to you. And whatever it is that has happened to you produces this unfettered, unrestrained, triumphant joy that can't be stopped or silenced or subdued by anything else that is going around. And the thing that Paul says we should have this response to is something called the glory of God, the hope that we have in the glory of God. Now, as we look at our second message, let me just, I told you we were going to do this, let me just remind you of the goals that we have as elders and pastors and that I have uh, for this series. We have five things we're asking God to do, and I hope you'll be praying for this as we go through our series. And they are our very simple goals, and they are these, that joyful worship would fuel our glad service to God as a church. That whatever we learn about worship from the Word of God in the time that we spend in this series would actually be fuel that would, would generate glad service to God as a, cho- uh, as a church through our joyful worship. And then secondly, that thankful worship would be our response to the grand story that God is telling in Scripture. That when we see the big story of what God is doing and how we have a part in that story and how that story shapes us, that our response would be not just joyful worship, but thankful worship. And then thirdly, that our corporate worship, the worship that we participate in when we gather together, would glorify God and would magnify His beauty to the nations. That there would be an outward dimension to what we do as we gather together, and that it would be intentional. And then fourthly, that our personal participation in this kind of worship would transform us to the image of the one that we worship, that we would think like he thinks, that we would value what he values, and that we we would respond to the world around us and to people who live in that world the way that he responded to them when he was on earth, that our personal participation in worship would transform us so that we would be like the one who we worship. And then finally, that we would see this kind of worship as so important that each one of us would give it our spiritual focus and our intentional engagement week after week after week. And so those are the the very simple goals that we have as a church for this series And I just want to recognize with you, and you know this, this is not anything you don't know, none of this will happen just because I stand up here and preach 
to you about worship. None of this will happen just because you take good notes or you follow the notes that are provided for you each week. None of this will happen just because we show up week by week by week. The Spirit of God has to do something. And so as we pray for these goals, let's pray for God to do a work in us and let's go to the Scripture and find out how God did that work in the life of someone who was uniquely equipped and who had experienced and tasted that work to such a degree that it completely reoriented his life and he wrote it down for us in our New Testament in various places. And obviously I'm talking about the man who wrote the letter that we're reading this morning in Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul. And the thing that so captured him, the thing that so centrally, radically grounded him, the thing that so transformed him, was something that he came to understand, and something that he came to see that we once had and was lost, but was now regained through the ministry of Christ. And the thing that we once had and that was lost on the day sin killed the human race was the glory of God. And that glory is what has been regained for us in Christ. And when we understand how the glory of God works in our lives and how the glory of God has been regained, it brings about this exaltation, this triumphant jubilation in our hearts. In fact, Paul says, when we get this, when we understand how the glory of God was regained and, and given again to us by the ministry of Christ through the gospel of the cross, Paul says you will respond in a certain way. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this is the way you will respond when you see the glory of God that you once had and that was was killed in you by sin, and that was regained and restored to you by the gospel of Jesus Christ, here's what will happen. You will bring your entire body, you will bring your entire life, and you will present it to God as a living sacrifice. And Paul says, this will be your spiritual worship. This will be what the Spirit of God engenders in you as the only rational and logical response to what God has done. Which brings a massive question to the forefront of our our thinking this morning. Why is it that when a world like ours, who knows the story of the gospel, they know about Jesus, they know that He's the Son of God, they, they, they know that He was born of a virgin, they know that He lived a sinless life, they know that Uh, He died on the cross and that He rose again. And some of them would even be able to tell you why He died on that cross. He died so that He could forgive the sins of the world. But they have completely no concept of what we're talking about. That message is just a theological reality that they trot out at Christmas and they trot out at Easter And that if you put them on the spot and you ask them, what do you believe about the gospel? They will say, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came, lived, died, rose again. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And that's it. And there's no transforming power in that. There is no exaltation of worship in that. There's no triumphant 
jubilation in that. And so my question to you this morning is, how did you come to see that? And how do so many people in the world who know that story fail to see it? And the answer is very simple. God did something in you. Romans chapter 1 tells us that the human race is blind to this glory. They know God. God's nature, God's character, God's presence, God's power is eminently displayed to them, both in creation and in conscience. And knowing the truth about God, what do they do? They suppress that truth. They hold it down. And because their foolish mind was darkened, their heart was darkened, catch that word darkened, they exchanged the glory of God, the beauty of God's character, the beauty of God's nature. They exchanged all of that for the foolishness of idols they made in their own image, or even worse, that they made after the images of the creatures that God initially gave them glory and authority over. This is a stunning thing. So how in the world are there people who have come to see differently, namely us? How are there people who have come to recognize what they never saw in Romans chapter 1? Because at one point we were all there. Romans chapter 3 says that the whole world was guilty before God. Every single one of us. And the first three chapters of Romans makes the case that there's not a person on the planet who didn't engage in that kind of glory-killing thinking. And in glory-killing darkness of mind and futility of mind and darkness of life. There, there's not a person on the planet. It doesn't matter how, how pagan you are and it doesn't matter how religiously persistent you are in the pursuit of your own righteousness. You have suppressed the truth. That's the point in Romans chapter 3. But by the time you get to Romans chapter 12, there's a whole throng of people who have come to see differently. And as they have come to see differently, they bring their bodies that they used to use for sinning, they bring those bodies now to Christ and they say, this body, this life, and all of its behavior belongs to you and I want to use it for your glory. And there's only one way that happened. The Spirit of God engendered that in you. That's why Paul calls it spiritual worship. It's energized in you by the Spirit of God. And so, as we come to worship this morning, and as we think about what Paul is saying in both Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 10, or Romans chapter 12, I want us to see from Paul some things about worship that ought to give us grounds for exaltation. And I want to begin by observing uh, that, that worship is reflective of a sacred memory. Worship is reflective of a sacred memory. Let me take you to Romans chapter 3, and let's see if we can't see that memory. Paul says, The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. I mean, this is a text that we know well. The righteousness of God that Paul's talking about comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. And then here's the text that you've quoted a hundred times. For all 
have sinned and fall what? Short of what? The glory of God. We talked about Romans chapter 1, and Paul reminded us there, didn't he, of the just wrath of God coming down upon the heads of every human being on the planet for despising and rejecting the glory of God. We talk about the glory of God. We talk about His radiant character, His nature, His attributes. If you pick up a theology book and you start reading in the section that talks about the attributes of God, theologians call what we're talking about this morning, they have a fancy word for it called the perfections of God. When the Bible writers describe God, they always describe God as seated on the throne. Usually, 99% of the time, when you open your Bible and you're reading about God the Father and you have some visible representation of Him, He's seated on a throne, and then there's something else that the Bible writers consistently use to describe God. He radiates light. He is blazing with light. His purity, His holiness, His goodness, His kindness, His mercy, His grace, all of His attributes, all of His perfections. His nature is so pure, and it's so incredibly jaw-droppingly wonderful. It, it radiates the intense beauty of light just coming from Him. And every time you see Him on His throne, He is radiant with this kind of splendor, blazing with this kind of brilliant, pure light that comes from within Himself. And the word the Scriptures use to help our limited minds grasp all of this is glory. That's the word. When we read about the glory of God, that word glory is the word the Bible writers use to describe everything I just said to you about the blazing beauty of God's radiant light. When Isaiah saw God seated on His throne, he saw that the robes of this glory fill the entire heavenly temple and the entire angelic Creatures that were around them were celebrating the one sitting on the throne who radiated this beauty and this light. And in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, Paul makes a stunning statement. He says, we have fallen short of that glory. You say, well, Pastor Sam, that's really not stunning. I mean, I, I kind of know that. I, I've known that my whole life. I mean, if you're trying to kind of give me something stunning, that's not it. I mean, that's not stunning, that's tragic. That's, that's not the part I want you to see. I mean, that's the part you need to see, and I hope the Spirit of God has helped you to see that. You'll never, you'll never come to salvation if the Spirit of God doesn't really help you to see that. But that's not what's stunning about this text. The implication that Paul's making is this. If we fell short of this glory, there must have been a time when we had it. There must have been a time when that glory was ours. You say, well, where do you go in Scripture to find that? Psalm 8, verses 5 through 8. David observed that when God made man, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care about him. David goes on to say, you crowned him with glory and honor. 
you gave him your glory and your honor. The jaw-dropping implication of David's statement is this. We were created by God in ways that visibly reflected his glory. And we were appointed by God to represent his authority over all the earth. And the place where all of this came together, where David is talking in Psalm 8, he's looking back to a place where all of this glory, the glory of God, was placed in the image bearer, Adam, and the image bearer, Eve. All of this glory and all of this honor that was to reflect God and to represent God, all of it came together in a garden temple that God placed in the middle of his own land, a land called Eden. And you know a lot about that because you've read Genesis. And so here's my question. What did Adam and Eve look like when the glory of God belonged to them? When God crowned them with glory and honor, what did they look like? Well, can I give you my personal opinion? Now, you're not obligated to believe my personal opinion. You are obligated to believe the Scripture. But you're not obligated to to believe my personal opinion. So I'm going to give you my opinion here, and I want you to think about it. What did Adam look like when he possessed and reflected God's glory? Maybe he looked like Moses when Moses came down from the mountain after being with God. Do you remember this? I'll never forget one of the times I was over in Israel. um, I went to the, the antiquity shop of a good friend of mine that runs one of the oldest antiquity shops in Bethlehem. His grandfather was the person who found or was given the Dead Sea Scrolls by the Bedouin shepherds who discovered them in the cave. His name is Kondo. And one day I was in Kondo's store leading a tour over there, and and while everybody else was shopping, I was just wandering around looking at the olive uh, wood statues, and I saw a statue of Moses. And, and, And of course, Moses is a big object of olive wood carving, and so there were tons of and all of, the, the, all of the pictures of Moses had two little horns coming out of his head. And I thought, now this is really, really odd. Why does Moses have horns? I'm thinking, maybe there is a relationship between my last name and Moses, and if I can make that connection, maybe I can justify buying this piece, and my, my dear wife will celebrate instead of object. And so... I went to somebody there and I said, can you please explain why Moses has got horns coming out of his head? And that person just started laughing and they called somebody else over and they said, hey, this guy thinks uh, Moses has got horns coming out of his head. I said, well, look at his head. There are two like things coming out of his head, right? Carved into the wood. And they said, they're not horns. They're, They're our depiction of radiating light. These are light beams that are coming out of his head. And I'm like, oh. And then I felt like the dumbest person in the world because 2 Corinthians 3 talks about the fact that when Moses came down from being with God for 40 days, what did his face look like? It radiated, it blazed with light to the point that Moses had to put a veil over it. And it's interesting, he had to put a veil over it for two reasons. Number one, because the people were afraid. But secondly, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says that glory was fading. It was fading. Maybe Adam and Eve blazed with that kind of light. Or maybe they looked like Elijah looked when he and Moses show up in the New Testament 
on the Mount of Transfiguration and they stand on either side of Jesus and they have a conversation about Jesus' exodus. And they're speaking about the cross. And they are so radiant, they are so blazing with light that the disciples who are witnessing this fall on their faces and they say to Jesus when it's all over, listen, let's just stay here and build three shrines. Or maybe Adam and Eve look like their older brother, Jesus, who you see in Revelation 1, verses 12 through 17, who is blazing with light to the point that when John saw him, his immediate response was to fall down on his on his face in worship. You say, Pastor, what are you saying? I'm saying that when Adam and Eve were created by God and God crowned them with glory and honor, He put His nature in them. He put His beauty in them. And they radiated with light. And then one day, they rebelled against the Word of God. They transgressed. And the light became darkened. These radiant creatures, these image bearers became dark. And maybe like Moses, they were so ashamed of the darkness that they did their very best to dress it up in garments of their own making. Maybe. And as we worship, we begin to realize we Worship because somebody regained for us that which was lost. Our sin was was deep, didn't it? It corrupted every part of us. Theologians call that the total depravity of man. It means every part of you, your mind, your eyes. That's why the Scripture says your heart is dead in trespasses and sins. That's why Paul said to the Corinthians, your eyes are blind. You've been blinded by the God of this world so that you cannot see The truth. That's how blind and dead we were. That's how dark we were. That's how deep the darkness was. That's how thorough the darkness was in us because of sin. But somewhere in our mind, we have a memory. And the memory is, there was a garden in which we had unbroken fellowship with the God of light. And we didn't just have fellowship with the God of light. We were like that God. He put glory and honor in us. And now Paul says in Romans chapter 5, that glory has been regained for you, and that glory is being restored in you. 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, when we behold Christ in the pages of Scripture, we go from one level of glory to another. There is a progressive development of that glory in us, and we begin radiating the character of the one who made all of this possible. And I believe there's coming a day, Jesus said in Matthew, that we would radiate light that we would be like the sun. We'll see that here at the end of our time together. And so, worship reflects a sacred memory. But secondly, worship is based on a sure promise. Listen to what Paul said to the Colossians in chapter 3. For you, and that's you and me, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then here's the promise. When Christ Who is your life appears when he comes back in radiant glory? Then you also will appear with him in glory. 
This light that was extinguished in in Adam and in Eve, this light that became darkness in them, this darkness that is the darkness that marked us morally and spiritually when we were born as the seed of Adam, has been completely undone by the work of the second Adam. And that glory has been regained in Christ. And there's coming a day, Paul says, when Christ appears in glory, you're going to appear with Him, and you are going to be glorious. Like He is glorious. This is not saying, listen, when Christ appears, you're going to appear also with Him in glory, in heaven. Sometimes we use the word glory for heaven. That's not the way Paul's using it here. He's saying, listen, when you see Christ, the next time you see Christ, He's going to be radiant and, 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 and just splendid in glory and next to him are going to be a whole group of of people who have been redeemed by him and they're going to look just like that you are also going to appear with him and you are also going to be glorious we will share that glorious appearance i told you jesus said something about this in matthew in matthew 13:43 listen to what jesus said about the righteous the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. A lot of commentaries take that as a symbolic statement. I wonder if maybe Jesus doesn't mean it literally. Because Daniel says that the righteous will shine like the stars, like the sun. Maybe this is what Paul meant. When he said, as we look into God's Word, we are transformed by that Word from one level to glory to another. That's what 2 Corinthians 3.18. And can I just park here for a quick moment? You will never worship well without doing what Paul talked about. Worship isn't about making your life better. Worship isn't about helping me figure out the next step of what I'm supposed to do in this sin-broken curse-infected world. That's not why we worship. Worship is about rendering glory to God because we have been restored to that glory. We are supposed to reflect the glory of God to the nations and we will never do that if we are not shaped deeply by the Word of God. And so let me just ask you a question. What is your relationship to the Word of God? You can come Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and you can sit in a pew for 50 years and not worship. You can think you worshiped. You can check the little box. You can come to a church like Palmetto for 50 years and not worship. Because worship starts when you gaze deeply into the Word of God. And I want to suggest to you that if you're not developing and cultivating in your life a hunger for the Word of God so that you are picking up this Bible, you say, man, I don't have time today. But the hunger drives you and you find even five minutes to get in God's Word. And you're not doing it because somebody else is telling you, okay, come along now, it's time to read the Word. You're doing it because you are hungry. And it doesn't matter if you're 10 or 90 This hunger should be in you. And if it isn't, you might not be 
a worshiper. You might still have a dark soul. This is based on a sure promise. And then, based on these two foundational realities that God is restoring to you, the glory that was lost by sin through Christ, all of our worship points to that. It's designed according to a pattern. That's the third thing I want us to see. Exodus 25.40 and Hebrews 8.5 both remark and remind us that when Moses received instructions for the worship of God's people, it was designed according to a pattern. God made a promise to Adam and to Eve on the day sin killed glory in them. As he expelled them from the garden, the promise he made to them is, look, I'm going to do something, and when I do the thing I'm going to do, you are going to come back into this garden. And you're going to spend the eternity that I've designed for you in this garden. You again are going to walk in the coolness of the evening with me. You're going to have the ability to eat whatever I put in the garden. You are going to have the kind of life that sin killed. You're going to have that kind of life again. I am going to bring you back to the garden. And so that you never forget the garden and you never forget the promise that I'm making to you to bring you back, I'm going to design your worship so that regularly you have garden experiences in the tabernacle and in the temple that I'm giving you. Adam and Eve were supposed to be a kingdom or they were supposed to be the heads of a kingdom where they would be functioning like royal priests. And God said, I'm going to raise up a nation from the nations, and they're going to be to me a kingdom of royal priests. And I'm going to put them in a land that belongs to me. Just like the garden was in a land called Eden that belonged to God, Israel was going to be put in a land that belonged to God. And by the way, it's interesting that the boundaries of that land are almost identical to the boundaries of the original Eden that you see in Genesis. In the middle of that land that God claimed for himself, the land of Eden, God planted a garden. And in that garden, God dwelt safely and securely and, and joyfully with his image bearers. And he said to them, I want you to take care of this garden. I want you to enjoy this garden. And I want you to fill up the earth with more image bearers who can experience what it's like to be under my benevolent reign. Israel was given a land, and in the middle of that land, there was a city named Jerusalem, the holy city of God. And in the center of that city was a temple that God made. For 40 years, as they were rescued out of the land of Egypt, and as they were moving forward to the land of Canaan, a land that had been filled up with iniquity, and God needed a kingdom of priests to go in and sanctify that land so that they could dwell there in, in the beauty of holiness. On the way there, God said, I'm going to give you a tabernacle, a tent of meeting. And if you look at the tabernacle and you later look at the temple, everything in that tabernacle you found in Eden. When you built the tabernacle, when Moses built the tabernacle, the Spirit of God empowered the builder, just like the Spirit of God energized and operated in the creation of the world. There were seven creation days. There are seven dedicatory speeches in Exodus related to the giving of that temple. In other words, that tabernacle and that temple are designed to remind you of a garden. And when you go in, 
all around the walls and on the tent sides are, are images of beauty, of plants, of trees, of pomegranates. When you walk in, I mean, you're in a desert. When you walk in, there is this massive abundance of water. When you walk by the tabernacle, you can smell the wonderful aroma of cooked food. And anybody who went in to that place could have all the water and all the food they wanted. They could dwell with God. But they had to get past the cherubim. Because there were cherubim on the, on the walls of the tent as you walked in. And then there were cherubim in the, the temp, on the curtain. And then when you went in, there were two massive cherubim that guarded the ark. And God said to them, I want you to have a portable reminder so that everywhere you go, you never forget the garden and you never forget the promise that I made that I'm going to bring you back to this garden. The temple is a majestic illustration of the garden and its beauty was wisely, skillfully made so that the kings of the earth bought tribute God says, I want you to have a sacred space. I want you to have sacred time. I want you to know what it's like to not have to... to I want you to have one day where you don't have to go out and, and do this back-breaking work in a sin-cursed world. I want there to be one day where you let me take care of you. Where you can rest in my presence and you can fellowship with me. And that day is called the Sabbath. And I'm giving it to you as a gift. I want there to be three seasons a year where you come together to my holy temple and you bring gifts and, and sacrifices and you enjoy the beauty of gathered worship as a nation where you don't have to worry about what you're going to eat or, or what somebody's going to think. You come and, and all together there is unbridled joy. There is fellowship. There is food beyond what you can imagine as you celebrate what it is to belong to me. Three times a year. There was sacred time. There was sacred space. And what made it all possible was a sacred sacrifice. How could sinful people come enjoy all of this? And God said, you have to bring a sin offering. And that's the fourth thing I want you to see about worship. It's designed according to a pattern that is, is there to remind us of the beauty of the garden but it's made possible. All of this is made possible by an acceptable sacrifice. Just like God provided a sacrifice for Adam in Genesis 3, and just like He provided the sacrifice for Abraham in Genesis 22, He has provided the perfect, blameless Lamb. The Lamb that belongs to God. That's why John the Baptist, standing on, in the middle of the Jordan River baptizing, saw Jesus walking by and says, now that one, that's God's Lamb. And that Lamb is going to do what the millions of lambs that we bring to the temple could never do. That Lamb is going to bear away the sins of the world. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says, he made purification for sins, and after he had done so, he sat down at the right hand of God. And all of this, when you get this, should result in the expression of joyful praise, glad obedience, and sacrificial service. You see how all of this ties together? The glory of God that was lost 
through the acceptable sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the Son of God, has been regained and is by the ministry of the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, being restored to you and to me. And that's why Hebrews says, through Him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. What is that? The fruit of our lips that acknowledges His name. What is it? Do not neglect to do good. What is it? Do not neglect to share what you have. Why? Because such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And that brings us to the next thing, and that is this. All of these sacrifices and all of this praise and all of this obedience is to be celebrated in a corporate gathered setting as the people of God. When we gather together in obedience to God and to His command, and we bow down, we declare something to each other. We declare something to ourselves, and we declare something to the world. And here's what we declare. We declare that God is our King. That He is our ruler. Remember the worship in heaven? It's all around a throne. And somebody is sitting on the throne. And we want to know about that person. What kind of a person is he? What kind of a king is he? Is he a brutal, harsh, demanding Lord? And we have to come fearfully. And we don't dare not come because of what will happen to us in the next seven days. Because we didn't come. And God saw. And God is angry. And God is hard. Is that the kind of God who sits on that throne? Or is He a God who is kind and gracious and loving and rules in ways that promotes our well-being, who forgives our sins, whose mercies never come to an end, whose mercies are new every morning, and at whose right hands are true and lasting pleasures? Is that the kind of God? You know, your worship will say a lot about your view of God. If you walk in and you come to a place where you are seeing all of this and you just kind of stand there and it's like, I, I, I'm so tired of standing. Can we not sit? Can we not stand? Come on, this, we ought to be standing for this song. Good grief. What's that worship theme thinking? It's too fast. Slowed it down. It's not fast enough. Pick it up. It's, we should be singing that a lot softer. That, that, song, that, that song was designed to be contemplative. That song should be celebratory. Why are we not? And here you are, and you're in worship, and you're thinking about the glory of God that was lost to you by sin, that was regained to you by Jesus, that is being restored to you by the Spirit of God, and what should be coming out of you is this joyful, jubilant singing, and all you can do is go, that's too slow, that's too fast, I didn't like that, we should sit, we should stand. Wow. What does that say about you? What does that say about me? What does that say about the church? And most of all, what does that say about God? This is why we come together, we celebrate God's righteous, gracious reign over us 
and it promotes glad obedience in us. This is why the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Why? Because when we come together, we come together with a heart of full assurance that our sins have been forgiven. We come together holding fast to the confession of our hope. We come together considering how to stir one another up to good works. You say, well, that sounds like worship is all about us. Well, it involves us, but it's actually about something much bigger. When we read Psalm 96 this morning, the next thing that we see is that worship announces a glorious blessing for the nations. Worship announces something. It celebrates something. It's joyfully triumphant because our enemy has been defeated. Our ancient enemy has been defeated. The ancient curse will one day be lifted. Sin has been dealt with and glory has been regained and will one day be restored. In fact, it's being restored now internally and one day it'll be restored to us in our bodies. But is worship really just about us? I mean, there's an upward focus to worship. There's this inward focus to worship. But Psalm 96 says there is an outward focus. Listen to what Psalm 96 says. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Three times we're supposed to sing. You say, why do we sing in worship? Because God told us to. God told us to. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous work among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Question. Why is every generation called to sing new and fresh songs? You ever wondered about that? We got 500 years of English history. And there's some people who say, we don't need any more. That's enough. We can't even sing the 500 years of history. We could spend every Sunday just singing the 500 years of history that have already been written. Why do we need more? We need more because God said we need more. We are to sing new and fresh songs to the Lord. Why? Because we have to add our own testimony to that of past generations of the glorious work that God is doing in our own time and in our own day and in our own lives for the glory of God and the good of the nations. I don't want to forget what God did in past generations. That's why we sing their praises to God. But I don't ever want to neglect the fact that God needs to be at work in my life and in my day and in my age. And I want to sing about that too. And so should you. And that's why here at Palmetto, we sing both Old and new. And we need to sing both because we need the watching world to know that God is not just a God who worked yesterday in our fathers and grandfathers and in our ancestors. We need the nations to know that God is alive and that He is present and that He is working now in our life. And when God is at work in my life and in your life, you know what comes out? Fresh songs of praise that get added to the ongoing hymnody. And if the Lord doesn't return for another 500 years, there's going to be a thousand years of hymnody that we ought to be singing and we ought to be adding to. And this is how 
the world will know what it's like to belong to this great king and what it is like to be ruled by this king and what it is like to live in this kingdom. And you say, well, why do the nations need it? Because they are raging, Psalm 2. They are raging against the Lord and they are raging against His anointed. And there's one group of people on the planet who have been enlightened. Their darkened eyes, their blind eyes were opened and they see the one sitting on the throne and they say to the nations, no, 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 no. You don't understand. He is a great king. He is a glorious king. He is a good king. And the writer of Scripture says, we enthrone God with our praise. We enthrone God in, in the eyes of the nation with our praise. And that brings us to a final thing, and that is this. All of our worship anticipates something. It anticipates a future reality. And that reality is in Revelation 15.4, where, where John rather saw the Lord on His throne, and, and he saw an innumerable number of people singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And here's what they were singing. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. And here's the point I want you to see. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Where have those righteous acts most clearly been revealed? In the work of Christ. Where are they clarified and explained in the Scripture? Where are they most evident in the lives of His redeemed people? Where are they most validated and celebrated? In the corporate worship of His people where we lift our voices in joyful, exuberant, jubilant thanks and celebration to the God who's done all of this. This kind of worship is exhilarating. It's transforming. But make no mistake, this kind of worship is demanding. Right? It's going to demand that we shape our lives and we shape our, our worship by the Scriptures more than we shape it by what makes us comfortable or what makes us convenient. Think about how the average American church operates. I want to figure out how to make people comfortable and I want to figure out how to make this convenient. And we have become consumers in our worship. We, we come and if it's not exactly the way we want it to be, instead of this joyful, triumphant jubilation, there is this sort of seething discomfort, seething this, this, this quietness in us, and we're like, nah, I, I don't like this. Think about how comfortable we want worship to be. Do you realize there are entire communities of people who, who basically say, we are not going to worship with the redeemed of God unless we're comfortable, and what makes us comfortable is everybody has to read the same version of the Bible. And if you entrench yourself, or even intrude slightly in that, it explodes. Think about what happens when a community of people gathers together to worship and, and, and they're all comfortable because the pastor wears a tie. And one day it's hot. And he shows up without a tie. And it's like the abominable abomination has happened in the temple of God and the desecration has occurred and people vanish. Where did they go? Well, the pastor didn't wear a tie. 
And I'm being really stupid here. Can I get an amen? But am I? Because you have your own comforts. And when somebody touches on that comfort in worship, it's like, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh No, 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 no. And the glory is forgotten and the beauty of Jesus is all but shelved and, and, and the restoration that is coming in you and the thing for the nations that we've been talking about. Okay, put that over there. we got a big problem. Did you see what so-and-so wore on the stage? Did you see what pastor wore? You know why I wear what I wear? Not today, but you know what I wear? You know why I wear jeans? For all of you people that think I should wear a suit, that's why I wear jeans. You know why I wear a coat? For all of you people that think I should wear jeans. You say, what in the world? You're schizophrenic. I know, my wife could have told you that. The reason we come to worship the way we come to worship is not so that we dress a certain way or we look a certain way or somebody reads a certain Bible a certain way. And I'm not talking about theological error. I'm just talking about what makes us comfortable. And until we are more about pursuing the glory that has been restored to us so that the nations see and rejoice, worship is going to be all about us. And sooner or later, that glory is just going to be a forgotten memory. And it's easy. That's why worship should be amazingly life-giving, but it should never be comfortable. And it should never be convenient. You know what's amazing to me about this church? I just want to brag on you for a minute. You know what the average drive for people sitting here this morning is? It's more than 35 minutes. People drive more than 35 minutes to come here. You know what? That's not convenient. And they come week after week after week. We have this glorious building. Pastor, that's why they come. We have this great building. We have a gym. And it rots. You try to sing in this gym. I mean, I'm thankful. Sorry, Lord, I didn't mean to say it rots. I mean, we're thankful for it, but it kind of rots. Right? You can't sing in this building. Blah, 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 blah. We got to be out of here. We got to set up chairs. You know, what's the mark of our church? What's the spiritual service we render to God? We set up chairs, and we tear down chairs. It's gospel chair work that we do. You know, there's very little here that is convenient. One of my great fears as we go into a building is that we'll lose that. You come to Palmetto, it's not convenient to come. It's not convenient to be here. There's not a lot of bling. There's not a lot of nice stuff. We got great classes. We got all the stuff that matters around the Word. But that's it. And you come week after week after week after week after week. And I just want to say as your pastor, thank you. You are to be commended for that. You give out of nothing. You have nothing. Some of you are barely trying to figure out how, how to make ends meet. And yet this January, you made a promise to God by faith and you have been excelling at that. It's not convenient. It's costly. But I promise you this. If we keep doing this week after week after week, the nations will see God enthroned on our praise. And they will say, look, he is a good God. He is a great king. And he is a kind God. And they will come. And sooner or later, they'll be in those chairs. Their eyes opened. Their hearts enlivened. And 
glory restored by the gospel of the God we worship. Lord, thank you for worship. Thank you for what it does in us. Thank you for the memory of what was lost. Thank you for the joyful jubilation we experience for what was regained for us by Christ. And for what one day will be visible to all as we shine like the stars. And Lord, we come to celebrate that because you are a great king. You reversed an ancient curse. You redeemed an ancient people. You have restricted and will one day doom an ancient enemy so that we could once again be in the garden temple with you and with a throng of people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. And Lord, we want that today. And Lord, our worship is the fuel for all of that. So help us to grasp this as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.